Welcome to Pacific Rim College Radio, a podcast sharing stories and wisdom from experts in the fields of holistic wellness and sustainable living. I am your host, Todd Howard, coming to you from Ravenhill Herb Farm, a permaculture design campus of Pacific Rim College in Victoria, British Columbia. As the show's guests demonstrate, by doing small acts to embrace more mindful living, we can positively impact our communities. During this episode, I journey with Joshua Hathaway through a paradigm-shifting vision quest that led him to question so much about personal accountability and emotional states. We talk about the power of nonviolent communication and how Joshua has used it on city streets to likely save lives. We explore the concept of distinguishing fact from narrative and are reminded of the power of listening. We also discuss the choice of living in a victimized state and Joshua gives what is now some of my favorite advice for healing emotional wounds. Joshua Hathaway helps relationships thrive through the art of interpersonal communication. As he elegantly puts it, he is devoted to building a more beautiful, equitable, and consensual world, one conversation at a time. Through training and coaching individuals, couples, and organizations in exquisite communication and collaboration at MasterYourBullshit.com, he has been championing authentic connection in the bedroom and the boardroom. For over 12 years, Joshua has been walking men back to their full humanity, connecting them to their deep sensitivity and primal potency, and growing their capacity for intimate relationships through his men's leadership work, most recently at TheBrotherhoodCommunity.com. And in collaboration with his partner, Lily Claire Love, he is offering live and virtual training in reclaiming our sexual sovereignty as a path to healing trauma and embracing deeply satisfying intimacy and relationship. Joshua will be presenting a two-day workshop at Pacific Rim College on April 4th and 5th called The Marriage of Compassion and Power, where he intends to fundamentally shift and evolve the way we communicate. If you are interested in enhancing your connection with others, Through the power of mindful and masterful communication, you won't want to miss a word of this episode. That's it. Let's do this, brother. All right. Joshua Hathaway, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Oh, what a pleasure, Todd. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. I know this was very short notice, so we're kind of going to do this spontaneously and see what comes up. Now, you are a, what I call a communication expert. Uh, that may not be the direct title that you use, but can you tell us a bit about that? I call myself a Kung Fu master, actually. Uh, <laughs> humbly, very humbly. Uh, and yeah, I have, um, my life is about relationship. Um, and um, I've spent the last 20 some odd years, deeply studying language, philosophy, psychology, um, somatics, movement, um, music, all different forms of language. And, um, and in particular, um, a, a, a practice called nonviolent communication, which was developed by Marshall Rosenberg. And it's a, an incredible way to get a hold of um, the communication that's at the heart of collaboration. Cause you know, collaboration is inevitable. We're collaborating all the time, right? From the moment we're born, we're collaborating on this family situation, pretty helpless at that point. Whether we end up in a cave in the Himalayas, we're still collaborating with 
our syntax and with all the people who taught us and with the with the, the ones who wrote the, the scriptures that we might be chanting um, as the sun sets, right? We're never not collaborating. So collaboration is not optional, but exquisite cooperation and connection and emergent collaboration is an art form. And it's definitely not, uh, not something any of us is guaranteed. So it takes a little bit of work. I've been following your work for about a year now and we've connected a few times and I'm really excited to work with you in person. We have you scheduled to come to Pacific Rim College later on this spring to do a workshop. Can you tell us a little bit about what you teach in your workshops? Yeah, so um, my brand is called No Bullshit Communication, right? And so I've taken, I've taken these powerful principles um, of um, how, to, how to collaborate and distilled them down into some essences and made them a little bit more, um, I, I like to say salty and fun, playful, and, uh, and getting rid of some of the fluff that uh, nonviolent communication or NVC is often communicated with, right? Because um, when it comes down to it, all of our relationships are, uh, are this stew. We're constantly putting ingredients in this, in this stew, right? And if you keep putting bullshit in your stew, then, it's not only gonna taste horrible, but it's probably gonna make you sick, right? So, um, so in this workshop that I've titled um, The Marriage of, of uh, Compassion and Power, which is essentially what some of these tools are, is we identify these really specific ways that we have been programmed, that we have programs running in the way that we communicate that, um, that kill collaboration, that, um, that diminish our sense of connection to others that um, that mess up our relationships and our capacity to really fully thrive in community and in our most intimate relationships with our partners, with our family, with our um, close friends and coworkers. So um, I'm going to be breaking down a set of really sort of on the ground, simple ways to start to flag and notice where you're bringing bullshit into your communication processes, right? Whether it's your projection bullshit, where you're storytelling at people and telling yourself stories and believing them and reacting to the stories in your head without ever actually checking in with the other person, whether they're accurate, right? Whether it's your reactive bullshit, somebody says something and you go right into an emotionally driven response without being aware that you're having an emotion that's driving the response, without self-reflecting and taking responsibility for that emotion, right? So we start to identify that. We identify our demand bullshit, which is the ways that we're constantly um, trying in one way or another, consciously or unconsciously, to coerce other people to do what we want them to do, right? Whether they really want to do it or not. And... Um, and we're going to look at our avoidant bullshit, all the ways that we're that we avoid the hard conversations and conflict, all the ways that we swallow our truth, all the ways that we even lie to ourselves and pretend like things are fine when they're not, instead of just communicating the piece of friction or the difficult thing to the person who we need to have that conversation with. And then we look at the sort of piece de resistance. This uh, this whole sort of mosaic comes together in looking at what I call our victim bullshit which is all the ways that we give our power away, all the ways that we make other people responsible for our experience and our outcomes, all the ways that we use blame, which come at an incredibly high cost to our own personal power and capacity to create our lives. And so when we start to see all this stuff and we start to actually learn the alternatives, 
we just have so much more choice available to us in any given moment when it comes to how to navigate a difficult spot, how to ask for what we want in a way that's concrete and doable, how to um, reflect back to somebody. A huge piece of this whole communication puzzle is how we listen, how deeply we listen, how fully we actually stop and listen when somebody's speaking instead of just waiting um, and loading up our responses while they're finishing up, right? And so deep empathic listening, carving right through all of the stories that might be coming at us and getting right to the, the core experience of the feelings and the needs underneath that, empathizing and validating that, even if we don't agree with the conclusions somebody might be drawing. So that's, a, that's a nutshell. That's a nutshell. This workshop's on April 4th to 5th. It sounds like there is a lot of content that is going to help drive personal growth. You are also gonna have a lot of people in this workshop who are healthcare practitioners or students of healthcare. How would this information benefit someone as a healthcare practitioner? Yes. Well, there's a, there's a lot of um, rich movement at Stanford University right now, training doctors um, in, the, in nonviolent communication. Um, you know, you can look at it as sort of cultivating bedside manner, right? Um, sometimes as health practitioners, we can get focused on people's symptoms and lose track of their humanity. Um, and so being able to deeply uh, empathize with the people who are coming into our office, to sit down with them, to open ourselves up, to have that sort of awareness that tracks symptoms and sees tags and tags information for use later in terms of diagnosis and cure is great, but also to be able to set aside any agenda, set aside any sort of sense of authority over, right? We have these inherent power dynamics involved in our, in our relationships as practitioner and patient that we wanna to try to sort of deconstruct a little bit to empower our patients to really take full responsibility for their healing and, and really see us as an ally and a, and a partner in that, not as the person doing it to them, right? Um, so there are just a number of ways that when we um, cultivate really exquisite communication and, and presence with somebody right where they are as they are, um, then we're communicating with everything that we do that, um, that we're a safe person and that um, healing is available here in this space. That sounds great. I very much am looking forward to attending and, and participating in this workshop. Let's back up. 20 years you've been studying language or communication. How did you get involved in this? Well, a uh, bit of a wild story. Uh, I had my own, what, you know, I can, I can look back and call a Kundalini awakening when I was 18 years old took me completely by surprise, rocked my world. I, I was sort of thrust um, rather ecstatically into a state of um, uh, no doubt and no fear. I, I suddenly could no longer fear the way that I used to fear. And I could no longer doubt in the ways that I was trained to doubt. And so I was just really present, really paying attention to my world and my reality. And, um, and finding a, a radical disconnect between the sort of paradigm, the materialistic, capitalistic, um, uh, separate paradigm and Judeo-Christian good, bad, right, wrong, like paradigms that I had inherited and had been thinking through my whole life. And uh, suddenly there's just all these beautiful empirical evidence of things that uh, didn't quite fit into those paradigms happening all around me all the time. What, and 
what catalyzed that paradigm shift in your your uh, understanding of doubt and fear? Well, it was a it was what I'd call a vision quest um, at a local beach where I live here in Santa Cruz. Actually, bef long before I lived there, it was my first visit to this beach. Um, some dear friends and I went down on a, a Saturday night, and um, we dropped some LSD, and we we'll get uh, things moving. Yeah, yeah, and we had this adventure on the beach where we had one flashlight between the six of us. And this beach is just a, just a vortex. It's truly a vortex of energy. And, and it's, it's got some of the most incredible rock formations and, and um, tide pools. And, and we just adventured all throughout the night um, to the sort of size of a, of a flashlight sort of lens. And um, it was through that process, a, couple, a few of the guys would sort of gave up on the journey and a few of us ended up at this out in this exquisite cave at sunrise that points out towards the water, sits out in this big outcropping of rock. And I, had, I just really grasped in, in a profound way um, during that journey, the way that um, I was watching, the way that fear was um, creating people's outcomes for them. Like to the extent that somebody brought fear to the situation, it would, it would tighten them up and it would make them incapable of like engaging playfully and curiously and, and adventurously. Um, and then that, that experience actually, I, I'll, I'll finish the story because it's a great story. So I have this big wake up moment around fear. And the next day after the sun rose and we all took a little bit of a nap, um, my group of friends and a few hippies came back out to where we had found this shipwreck amongst the rocks. And there was a little lagoon on the other side of the shipwreck that washed up into a cave with a beach in it. And we jumped in and we were playing. We hooked our belts together and were able to create a little way for the waves to bring us up and grab onto the belt and haul ourselves back up onto the rock. So we were frolicking and playing. And uh, one of the girls who was with us and this old hippie who had originally told us that there was a shipwreck out there were back in the cave. It was time to get out of there. And they were like, we're not swimming out there. We're not going to go swim out. We're not going to get sucked out into the ocean. And they, they just shut down in terror and fear. And I watched how the older man was enrolling this woman in his fear and creating this whole scenario. And we were just like, we just want to get our friend to get out of here. My friend and I drove. They're like, you have to call the, call the Coast Guard. We're not getting out of here. There's somebody has to come and get us. And it was literally like a 20-foot little like wade out into water just above the head where you get raised up on the wave and pulled out. My buddy and I go to the store. We get a rope. We bring it back. We tie a stick on the rope. I like jump in. I deliver it to them. The tide's getting higher, so their little cave is getting smaller and wetter as the as the hours pass, right? And have a have a conversation with with uh, with both of them. And the guy is just adamant, like, call the coast guard. We're not leaving the cave without the coast guard. And so finally, we call the coast guard. The coast guard sends a boat and swimmers and they swim into the cove and then swim them out of the cove into the ocean and take them down to the next beach and drop them off where we picked, them, uh, picked up our friend later. And it was just such a like magnificent demonstration of the way that fear just shuts people down and closes them off to absolutely um, reachable options. And so it was, a, it was a big shakeup of a lot of paradigms for me. And, and it took me a lot of years to unpack it to, to commit myself to understanding what happened, what was my breakthrough. And it made me um, just fascinated and committed to human um, freedom, to getting free of 
the, the, um, the, the mental constructs that keep us small and keep us unhealthy, keep us sick, keep us broken, keep us in broken relationships, keep us in pattern of behavior and addiction, right? Um, and so I entered into a course of study when I hit the university, um, double majored in philosophy with an emphasis on religious studies and um, psychology. And so my, my philosophy major was a way to to really study uh, like a multidisciplinary study of language, religion, philosophy. Um, and then I went on to get my master's degree in somatic psychotherapy, studied nonviolent communication. I've just been tracking this map that human beings have to move through in order to break free of those constructs and cultivate the most like thriving bodies and relationships and awareness and life practices possible. Vision quests have been so cathartic for so many people and plant-based and fungal-based vision quests are becoming extremely popular and, and in, so, in some parts of society accepted. LSD tends to still be on the fringe of that. What do you think the difference is? Well, I think there are multiple differences. LSD has been associated with, uh, um, it's been around for a lot less time, number one, right, as, a, as an isolate. Number two, it's been associated with all kinds of sort of particular cultural things since it, its inception. Um, and number three, it doesn't have the rich ceremonial history and indigenous history that psilocybin, ayahuasca, San Pedro, iboga, that all of these um, um, emerging uh, medicines have in their traditions. So there's not, it doesn't have the anchoring and tradition that these other medicines do, which do ultimately um, play a pivotal role in creating the container within which those medicines can operate in a human being, create a sense of safety, anchor us in a sense of community and, and help the healing to happen and to integrate, right? LSD is kind of considered this like party drug, right? Um, and so it's understandable and I think um, regrettable to some extent um, because LSD is another powerful way to literally break free of the schema in the mind and hit some of those um, some of those networks that are a few standard deviations away from the norm in your in your thought patterns right yeah and there's um, certainly is essential to evolution yeah and there certainly is a lot of research now demonstrating the the power potential behind LSD and other synthetic derived uh, substances that can can take you out of that construct. Absolutely. The book Nonviolent Communication has come up a few times. It's one of my all-time favorite books, which I only read after hearing you on a podcast about a year ago. And yeah, I've I've now read it a couple times, and I've also uh, read through um, one of my other favorite books is Getting the Love You Want which uses Imago therapy and Imago communication, which I find maybe just different names for the same thing. Can you tell us a bit about nonviolent communication? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, I want to start with, um, with where the name comes from because nonviolent, right? Like, what do you mean violent? I'm not violent. What are you trying to say? You know, there's a, there's a, there can be an automatic kind of trigger response to the name itself which is an inheritance from uh, the venerable traditions of social change vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Gandhi and Martin Luther King, right? It's uh, the principle of ahimsa, do no harm, um, of, of operating nonviolently in the world, which helps shed light on um, 
the ways that our communication has subtle violence um, sort of um, baked into it, right? The moment I call you a name, I judge you, right? Um, I've done a subtle violence to you. The moment I think I know you to a certain extent, instead of just being in the presence of the mystery of you and, and, and like enjoying collaborating with that mystery, I do a subtle violence to you when I categorize you in some way, right? Much the less when I, when I threaten you or coerce you or try to get you to do something you don't want to do or try to use shame or pain or the, the threat of, of emotional withdrawal to get you to do something I want you to do. And so we identify that there are all these forms of violence baked into the way that we've been trained to communicate. And <clears throat> nonviolent communication is just an incredibly elegant system for um, noticing the observable things, for tracking it down to the simplest like fundamental units. Like when we talk about, when I talk about projection bullshit, right? Projection bullshit is the storytelling mind. Um, the practice that we get invited into with nonviolent communication is distinguishing between my stories and interpretations and the actual facts of the matter, right? This, it's, it sounds so simple, but if you just spend a single day of your life, two hours of your life, consciously tracking the difference between where you're adding interpretive content, good, bad, beautiful, ugly, um, stupid, smart, to the what is that the camera would catch or the microphone would, would, would pick up, you will be astounded how much of your own sort of projected information you perceive happening in the world, especially when we have emotionally charged relationships and conversations, right? And so bringing us back to a simple mindfulness practice of noting the difference between what actually happened and my story about it, right? Um, and then being able to name the observation. Because when I start a hard conversation by telling you a story about you that you don't agree with, then we're off to a bad start, brother, right? <laughs> but if I start a conversation naming an observation that neither of us can deny, hey man, you said you were gonna have the dishes done by five, it's seven o'clock, they're all over the counter. Like nobody can deny that, that's just a fact. So how do we start with a moment of shared reality, especially when we're entering into difficult conversation? So, <clears throat> and how do we start to see our own stories running and own it and say, hey, Oh, that's a story. That's not, that's not fact. I need to check that story because my story is that you don't care about me or you don't love me, you know? So um, I got to check that because if I act upon that story as a fact, then we're going to get into a game of quick diminishing returns around giving love, right? So another piece, um, you know, nonviolent communication, Marshall Rosenberg um, is a, is a huge fan of, of, recognizing feelings and needs as core universal human experiences, right? Emotions, by feelings we're talking about sad, happy, angry, disgusted, disappointed, scared, curious, um, and, and needs, universal human needs of connection. Of course, we have the survival needs like shelter, food, water, um, uh, and air. But then, of course, I don't think any of us are here just to survive. We're all here to thrive. And in order to have a thriving life, we need connection, community, belonging, beauty, um, empathy, you know, all the things that are just irreducible human needs. And to see that our feelings are just um, coming up as to, to help us be aware of the fact that we have a need that is or is not being met. 
And then we can track that feeling back to what's my need. If I'm feeling angry, wait, what am I needing? I'm not feeling angry because, um, cause Todd, um, uh, said that he didn't like my car, right? I'm feeling angry cause I have a need for acceptance, right? It comes back down to that. And Todd doesn't have to like my car for my need to acceptance to be met ultimately. So really coming back again and again to the phenomena of what's actually happening. How am I feeling? What am I needing? Um, and then turning that around and also bringing our attention to somebody else when they're talking, what's this person feeling and what's this person needing? How can I not get caught up in their story about what's going on and just be present with the human being in front of me and their feelings and needs. It's a powerful sword that just carves through so much bullshit that can um, very easily interrupt an otherwise beautiful human connection. So we humanize people the more that we really connect with their feelings and needs. And then we learn through the art of making doable requests to catch our demand bullshit, to um, start to collaborate more exquisitely. Because every time I bring demand energy to somebody, even if they want to give me what I'm demanding of them, I make it harder for them, right? I could, I could have prepared this beautiful gift for you. It took me hours to make and I'm, I'm, I'm walking towards you with this gift. The moment you express like an entitlement to my gift, like what the fuck, just give me the gift, you know? That's mine, give it to me. Then this thing that I moments ago wanted so badly to give to you, now I just wanna like slap you over the head with it and take it home, right? So how do we how do we encourage generosity in our world by actually um, asking for what we want without expecting anybody to give us anything, right? It's a profound spiritual. Every one of these little tools and is is a profound spiritual practice in itself, right? Um, so that's the basic model: observation, feelings, needs, and requests. And Can you give a bit of an example of, of putting that into practice communication with another being what might that look like that's different from yeah absolutely well, um, if you need a participant yeah um well if uh, you know I, I would be happy for um for you to to bring an example if you have a hot one and we could even role play something right that's the that's the juicy stuff but i mean it comes down to um i walk home after a long day at work and i'm really just hoping for some rest and some ease and I walk in the house and it's noisy and there's a mess all over the kitchen. My partner said that she was going to, she was going to have dinner on the table by six and the house like cleaned up. It's, um, it's six 30 and dinner hasn't even started getting made. I'm famished and I'm, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm overwhelmed. Right? So I could go into my bullshit and be like, what's wrong with you? Like, do you even care about me? Like, do you have any respect for me? Like, I don't, you know, what's your problem? You said you were going to have this done. I could take all that emotional intensity and just vomit it out. And what are you talking about? I've been so busy that I haven't had a chance to do the dishes. You don't know what my day has been like. Exactly. So by that entree, right, we just put the gloves on and we're ready to fight. Because I'm over here all about my needs. And then you're over there all about your needs. Like what? Like I got needs too. I'm a human being. Right. But if I can walk into that situation and I can make an observation and I can connect with my emotion. Like, yeah, I'm feeling frustrated right now. You know, what am I needing? It's not what did they do? And all that behavior out there is just a, is just a little bit of um, spark for whatever sort of powder keg of emotion and needs are happening inside of you. 
And so, ah, I'm feeling really frustrated. Um, I'm feeling exhausted. I'm needing a sense of support. I'm needing um, beauty and ease right now. And when my partner says that I'm, that they're gonna uh, have something handled by a certain time and they don't, like needs for trust get, get, uh, get damaged, right? Um, and so if I can bring that, say, hey, like, first of all, set a container. Do you have a moment to hear something that's coming up for me? You know, yes. Okay, great. We have consent to have a conversation. We've set a little bit of a container, right? I'm feeling really frustrated. My need for support and beauty and ease is not getting met here as I land home. And um, what you said you do isn't done. You know, um, I'm wondering if you can just reflect that back to me. And here's like, ding, like pause the play, roll it back, do it again, pause the play, roll it back, do it again. Asking for a reflection one of the most powerful requests you can make because we all want to be heard. And the first thing that's going to start coming up for somebody in a, in a charged emotional situation is, is their response. But when you ask them, can you just reflect back to me? You make sure they're listening and you also get an opportunity. They get an opportunity to make sure they're listening and reflect back to you before they launch into their response. Right. And so that's just one simple example of taking a, a charged situation and bringing principles and awareness to it a practice of connection and seeing the humanity in the other person and you might you might even um give yourself that moment of empathy wow like i really really need some ease and some connection and some support right now take a breath and see your partner see the kids crying see the mess see the exhausted look on her face and actually move into a state of empathy and like understanding and care for her like wow babe like I can imagine how just overwhelmed and exhausted you're feeling right now, you know? How can I support you? So there's so many ways to go, but it's just those first one, two, maybe even three patterned responses that we have to breathe through and apply some sort of principled action to, to really help us to get across that gap. Yeah, and I love the stories that Marshall Rosenberg tells in the book of how the communication works possibly best when both people are on board with it, but how he has even found that even if the other person is not on board with it, it still can be a very effective way to communicate your feelings and emotions to someone else, whether or not they want to receive that, which is a lot better than your first scenario of coming home and being like, what is going on? What, why isn't this done? Absolutely, man. You know, it's always more fun when both people are dancing the same dance, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a dance you both want to dance. The fact is that a lot of, a lot of people in their relationships are dancing a dance that neither of them wants to dance. And it takes one person to start dancing a new dance to shift the paradigm. You know? but if we can take this back for a second into the scenario of a healthcare practitioner, how would this type of communication potentially benefit them during their dialogue with a client or a patient? Well, you know, the easiest examples for me are to go to some of the sort of extreme emergency room situations that I doubt a lot of your, um, a lot of your, your students are going to be facing, right? But I, I do want to give a nod to the fact that it's incredibly valuable to de-escalate conflict in those situations. And if you can look at it from the perspective of somebody who's having a psychotic break or is um, having some sort of drug-induced stupor, to be able to show up to, and not escalate, but to de-escalate situations by giving that person empathy, having clear boundaries and firm sort of like yeses and nos about what they can and can't do in the space while also empathizing, like 
it looks like you're feeling really scared right now. Well, that sounds like you're really angry right now. You're really wanting some support, right? The moment you start bringing empathy to a person, whether they're in a state of like psychotic sort of drug induced violence, or they're just somebody who is, um, dealing with a, a disease or pain in their body that confuses them and is, is diminishing their sense of joy in the world and, and their range of self-expression. Um, and, and you can start to sort of de-escalate that through an empathic presence, through a listening presence um, and acknowledging and validating their experience. Um, it goes such a long way to helping soothe the nervous system because that's what it takes for people to be able to really learn and receive, right? If you're a practitioner who's who's giving um, a treatment and you're also wanting this person to go home and take their medicine and, and, and get into a few practices, they're much more likely to be receptive and available to learning and trying new things when their nervous system has, has reached a state of, of, of regulation that's susceptible to that. Yeah. And I found when I was a healthcare practitioner uh, as an acupuncturist that I would have sessions with clients where we wouldn't even go acupuncture because it ended up being an hour of just talking and I found that so many clients just wanted to be heard and it was in some cases very rare that anyone had actually given them their undivided conscious presence and attention and just heard them and the beauty of nonviolent communication as you you demonstrated is that not only do you hear them you reflect back to them what they're telling you, which just goes that much further to soothing the person who is trying to share. And I find that it just had an incredible impact um, before I even knew about nonviolent communication, but just in my practice and in, in, in doing that, it was, it was very powerful. Mm, truly. Yeah. There's, there's this, there's this really massive um, hunger for empathy in our culture in our social media. Look at me kind of culture. Um, there's a hunger for somebody just to open and listen, right? And there's something really powerful that happens there because we've all been trained, especially as men, I think we get stuck in this idea where don't open your mouth unless you have a solution, right? Um, and if you don't have a solution, then, um, then what you say isn't worth anything or you, know, you have to jump to fixing things, right? And it's this very outside-in model, like something outside can fix this person, like words I can say can make them better. Right. And nonviolent communication is underpinnings is a very um, is an emergent model is a self organizing model. Right. Like you have all of the answers to all of the challenges actually inside of you. And sometimes my suggestions, my thinking that I know and my trying to insert some information into your system can come off as a demand that the system actually has to reject. And so when I just sit with somebody and instead of trying to make them feel better, I just support them in feeling heard and exploring. So, you know, maybe you, you're, you're sharing something with me and I just keep pointing you back to yourself. Sounds like you're feeling really, really confused and you're needing some clarity, right? I keep pointing them back to themselves because when they look at themselves, but not alone, when they look at themselves in the witness of another person who's holding a space for their self-discovery process through talking it out, there's something magic that happens and it activates their system in a really powerful way to start self self reorganizing and self healing. Mm -hmm. So much medical education I find lacks in the importance of bedside manners. And when it applies to natural healthcare practitioners, 
where people tend to be more choosy about who they will go to see, bedside manners just cannot be underestimated in the ability to connect with a patient and to help them heal. And what you are offering is just enhances the tools that a practitioner has to be able to connect. And that is, it's so valuable. It's, I can't, Absolutely. I can't overstate how valuable that is. Massively, especially as somebody who's building a new practice, right? Meeting yeah. a lot of new people. Like that first interaction is going to be so important. It, the results of your treatment are one thing, yeah. but really how somebody feels in your presence is going to be one of the most important factors for them to come back for more care. Yeah, it's so true. And in a place like Santa Cruz or here in Victoria, there are 10 healthcare practitioners on every block. So yeah. there has to be something that at least gets patients in your door and keeps them there. So you have a chance to demonstrate your, your medical skills. Otherwise you're not going to have any patients or clients to help. Earlier you talked about facts and I just want to dive into that with facts versus narrative. Well, what's the difference? What, how does this unfold in our communication? Yeah, well, really simply, um, facts are what the camera would catch. Facts are what the, what, the, um, what the microphone is picking up right now. It's what somebody said, it's the action that they took, right? Um, facts are not, uh, and, and we tend to sort of wrap all of the facts that we perceive in story. And so um, um, the fact might be that uh, I uh, bumped into you with my shoulder as I was walking by you, right? But there are a thousand ways to interpret my bumping into you with your shoulder. There are a thousand different kinds of reactions and responses. And so um, we, we want to really look at that distinction. We want to look at, like, what is a fact? It's observable. It's concrete and it's discrete. We can observe it with our, with our eyes, with our ears you know, with our, with, our, with our skin, with our tactility, with our taste, right? It's something we can sink our teeth into, a fact. Um, it is um, concrete and it's discreet. It happened. It just happened. And we like to sort of take these kinds of facts and put them into patterns and then, and then sort of tell stories about those patterns, right? Like, you never um, loved me or you never do the dishes. If I tell you, you never do the dishes, what's the first thing? I did thing? it three weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. Like last time you did the dishes and all of a sudden we're polarized, right? Mm -hmm. But when we say like, when I say you said you would do the dishes by five and they're not done, it's a fact, right? And, it, um, and it's, it's really powerful to bring our awareness into the present moment, actually, to look at what's actually happening and distinguish it. And to, because our memory is so plastic and we can really make adjustments to memory based on our interpretations of things right to really carefully be able to pull apart and the discreteness factor is important right because the moment i say you always or you never i'm more than likely projecting i'm more than likely telling a story i mean it's true you've never come to one of my birthday parties todd you have to talk true. about this but you've never invited the fact is that i've never invited you to one right so um but but when we're talking about behaviors and relationship we really want to stick with a concrete discrete example we're much more likely to have a productive conversation about the dishes today than we are about the overall pattern of dish doing and how much that sort of points at your level of care and investment in the relationship <laughs> and to communicate the facts would you say it's important to pull back the emotions 
Are the emotions not part of this? Uh, well, it depends on how you look at it. The emotions could be part of the facts, right? It's an observable, like I can observe emotions in, in my system, right? Um, and so it's part of the observables. It's not necessarily an interpretation, right? I notice when I see um, clothes all over the floor, right? Not when I see the house is a fucking mess, right? But when I see, you know, articles of clothing on the floor in the living room, that's a, that's a fact, right? Mm -hmm. um, I feel frustrated, right? Those are just what's happening, phenomenological observation. I just want to pause you on that. You said, I feel frustrated as opposed to you made me frustrated. Yeah. Or that made me frustrated because I find that that is so often where we go with our communication into the victim mode immediately by yeah. putting blame on us feeling a certain way. Yeah, every time we make somebody responsible for our emotions, we give our power away and we resent them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so it is, a, it, it is a very compelling narrative to say things like, you made me feel this way or it made me feel, when you did this, it made me feel. But no, it just so happens that when you did that, I felt this way. Yes. Right? Um, that's that's yeah. so simple and it's so elegant to hear it and yet it is so hard to put into practice all the yeah. time, especially when triggered. It is. It is. It's but incredibly it's hard. So powerful. And worth the practice, right? Uh, Mar my favorite quote of Marshall Rosenberg's is, you know, anything worth doing is worth doing badly for a while. Yeah. Right? Suck at it. Just get ready to, to, to be awkward at this for a while. People talk about how the, the use of the of the nonviolent communication language is so like unnatural and inauthentic. Yeah. And I'm like, well, sure, it's unnatural and inauthentic um, uh, from a certain perspective, but really it's just not habitual. It's not what you're used to doing. And the structure of it, I feel, when I see blank, I feel blank because I have a need for blank. Would you be willing to blank? Like that's practice. That's, uh, that's the pitcher throwing pitches, pitch after pitch um, on the field, and that's just batting practice. That's what you do to sort of structure a packet of information because sometimes it's the best thing you can do not to launch into your, your pattern of bullshit, right? And it can be awkward, and it's meant to be because it's actually increasing your level of awareness in the moment and potentially increasing the level of vulnerability in the interaction because we're getting real with each other right? yeah. instead of just like shooting flaming arrows at each other that truth awesome. can be delivered what's that i was going to say that that or i wanted to say that small change in my communication has had such profound impacts on my relationships just to take full ownership of my feelings and emotions and not to put that on anyone else or anyone That's else. massive that's, that's so massive. That's the game. That's it right there. It boils down to taking radical responsibility for your experience, mm -hmm. right? I can't take any responsibility for your behavior, but I better take 100% responsibility for my behavior, 100% responsibility for the way I feel, 100% responsibility for the stories that I'm telling myself. Um, because as long as I'm, as I'm making you responsible for that, then I'm stuck. I am stuck and there's no way out because you are the one who's responsible for, for fixing the situation, not me. Yeah. So let's look at that radical responsibility. It's, I think it's easy for listeners to uh, jump on board with in some situations, obviously, 
being in control of our emotions. But let's just say in a scenario, someone is overtly mean or nasty to you. They are intending to hurt you and maybe even physically. How do you take radical responsibility in that situation? Well, first of all, you have to create a boundary that keeps you actually safe. If somebody's physically harming you, if somebody's emotionally harming you with vitriol, then you need to set a boundary, either get yourself out of the situation or, um, or put a wall between you, whatever needs to happen. First priority is, to, is to safety, is physical safety, right? Um, and then, and that's you taking radical responsibility for your safety, right? Um, and we can never predict what's going to happen. And there are such moments as people be, being victimized. If somebody jumps out of a, 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 um, an alleyway and beats me over the head with a hammer and takes my shit, like I've just been victimized, you know? I've just been harmed. Now, from the moment I wake up for the rest of my life, I have two choices about how to relate to that situation. I can continue to victimize myself through trafficking and all of the sort of negative emotions, blaming that person, hating that person, telling, you know, feeling like, why didn't I, I didn't deserve this? I should, that shouldn't have happened to me. They were so wrong. Or, which is me, putting my attention on the perpetrator, on the other person. Or I can choose to be a survivor and I can choose to tend to the one who needs my support and my attention the most. Am I okay? Am I physically okay? Okay, what do I need to do next? I need to you know, get to the police station and make a report. Um, there's a way of turning our attention toward ourselves in a radical way. And all of the energy that we put towards blaming, being angry at, resenting, um, and trying to punish to some extent, and that's different than accountability. We can talk about that. Accountability and justice and restoring connection are one thing. Punishment and punitive mentality is totally another thing. Um, but the more attention I can, I can put on myself, the healthier my relationship is with myself. The more attention I put on the other person and trying to get them to admit something or whatever it is, then I'm in a, I'm, I'm in a state of victimhood. And oh. either, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's so fascinating and powerful how this works. In any case, let's call it a, a perpetrator. Would you say that part of us taking radical responsibility is finding way to forgive? It is. It, well, it's never going to be healed without forgiveness. Okay. But, but forgiveness is definitely not the first step. And there's kind of, there's kind of two camps, right? There's the camp of like, just forgive, love and light. Everything is fine. It's good. Kind of bypassing and denial of the sort of animal trauma that your body's been through and acknowledging the veracity and intensity of your feelings and finding safe places to express that, right? We're not talking about shutting down the trauma response and pretending it doesn't matter. It, doesn't, it didn't happen. And then there's the other camp, which is like, fuck it. You know, they're, they're written off forever. I'll never forgive that person, you know? And, and the truth is the medicine is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. We have to, we have to honor that part of our animal body that needs to be angry, that needs to, that needs to resent, that needs to have a wall up to protect ourselves from that person while we do. And we have to recognize that our karma with that person will never be complete until we forgive them. Mm -hmm. That the pattern that they showed up to out picture for us in our lives um, will never be sort of resolved until we learn how to forgive that person for what they did and take radical responsibility for the choices that we've made that put us in that situation in certain cases as well. And that's the difficult part. 
Yeah. That was the ruthless responsibility for all those choices that we made, all the compromises we made on the way to that big perpetration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that was a great response. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. As you said earlier, you've been on this journey for over 20 years. What reflections have really stuck with you other than what we've talked about during that time, whether it's very specific incidences with communication, leading your, your men's workshops, working with couples, what sort of events stand out for you? Yeah. The first story that comes to mind that I'll share is, um, is a, a time that um, I'm pretty sure that I saved um, a few lives with empathy. Um, I was, uh, I was coming home from co-leading a family um, camp, a nonviolent communication family camp, family heart camp in Virginia. And I was in Oakland and I, and I got on the wrong bus. I just spent a week in like this oasis of empathy, like playing with children and, and learning and growing with a community of parents and really committed practitioners. Um, so I was just full, my cup was so full and I was so in the, in the modality of laser empathy. And this guy walks out from an alleyway. I'd taken a wrong bus, so I had a mile walk to where I needed to go. This guy walks out of the alleyway and he's got a hospital gown on his shoulder and, and one of those like hospital smocks on, bruises all over his face. And he was just like, he, he was not well. And he's like, hey, uh, I'm gonna kill somebody today. And I said, you know what I, well, you know what I didn't say? Oh no, man, you don't wanna do that. Don't kill somebody. What I said was, wow, brother, sounds like you're really angry right now. And for the next five hours, I sat with this man. Wow. And I heard his story about having um, his hotel room broken into by three individuals who were, it was during just after the Eric Garner um, murder and acquittal. And there were riots all over Oakland. Eric Garner was an African-American man killed by a white cop in the, um, in the BART system uh, who was acquitted for the crime. There was rioting happening all over the place. Three African-Americans knocked on his door and said, hey, do you like white people? He's like, yeah, I like white people. And they, they busted in and tied him up and beat him up and took everything he had, right? And uh, spent hours torturing him. And they took his card and went and used it at his cousin's supermarket. And so he knew where they were and he had a gun. And he's like, I'm gonna get my gun. I'm gonna wait for them to come back and I'm gonna murder them, all three of them. And I sat there with that man for five hours. Never once did I say, don't do it. Never once did I pander to that man's conscience. I just empathized with the grief and the pain and the trauma that he was in. I cried with him about his experience. And he, he thanked me and he cried on my shoulder and he said, thank you, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go, go to my, my baby sister's house and just lay low. Um, you know, and he was ready to do time. He was ready to spend the rest of his life in jail because he was that just angry. And so empathy cannot be underestimated. And if there's any one thing that anyone here takes from this conversation, it's to practice listening more. You don't have to be good at it. You just have to start practicing right where you're at. Start listening and, and just saying people's words back to them. If that's what you got, reflect back to them because nobody would be opening their mouth if they didn't want to be heard. It's the one thing you can guarantee a need that, uh, that somebody's trying to get met when they open their mouth. And so 
if you can't meet any of the other needs at play in the situation, at the very least, you can meet their, their need for being heard. And um, that in itself is going to um, not only radically upgrade the level of connection and intimacy that you get to have in all of your relationships, but it's also going to attract, it's going to start to attract a whole new quality of human being into your field. Because now you're paying attention, you're listening, um, you're available, um, instead of just sort of performing, as many of us kind of get stuck in doing sometimes. Well, that's a great story. Powerful. Thank you for sharing that. As you continue to practice what you're learning and to help so many people, what still surprises you? So many things, brother. Ah, just, it, it, it never ends the, the sort of infinite uh, horizon. Um, constantly discovering subtler and subtler layers of my own stories, subtler and subtler, subtler layers of my own demand bullshit, the energetic demands that I make subtler and subtler layers of places where I'm, I'm in collapse, right? I, I um, you know, I've been on a, on, a, on a hunt for my victim bullshit for a while now. This is probably about seven years ago that I created this little song that I would sing to myself. Every time I saw myself basically like making somebody else responsible for my experience in, in like negative and positive ways, right? I would sing myself a little song and I'd go like, V-I-C-T-I-M, I feel this way because of them, a victim. I'm a victim. V-I-C-T-I-M, I feel this way because of them, a victim. I'm a victim. And I just crack myself up. It's like, fuck, dude, you're doing it again. You know, you're, you're making so-and-so responsible for your state of being right now. And it's none of their business and none of their responsibility. They get to be exactly who they are, doing exactly what they're doing. And you get to be you, knowing that this is your life you're living, you know? And you get to take responsibility for how, how deep you're breathing right now. You get to take responsibility for how relaxed your shoulders are, how, how erect your spine is. You get to take responsibility for how much gratitude you're trafficking in right now for all the beautiful things in your life. And when you start taking responsibility for those simple things, oh my God, this world opens up. It's, mm -hmm. It is just a precious jewel of, of a universe that we live in when we can really become masterful at where we put our attention and how we tend to the state that we're in because does you know the decisions that you make about your life are far less important than the state from which you make those decisions again and again i don't know what i'm going to do tomorrow can you but i know that i'm going to cultivate a state of like joy peace joyful anticipation excitement vision and purpose and when i'm when I'm trafficking in those chemicals, baby, ooh, the choices I make are bold, courageous, scary, and beautiful. And they, they just, my life just gets bigger and more beautiful all the time. And it's hard though. How often, or when, let's say, when's the last time you sang that victim song to yourself? Because uh, aware as you are of all of these things in your communication. Yeah, no, I, I, I caught some victim bullshit just yesterday. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't go away. No. It just has less and less hook if you're if you're committed, right? And 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 part of it is like you have to feel it. You actually have to feel it. We we all of these sort of spiritual traditions and all this meditation work people are doing are kind of trying to get up above their bodies in some way and just kind of like live in the in the in the ethers, in the realm of like truth or something. 
And I'm sorry, like you live in a body. I'm not sorry. I'm so excited for you to be living in a body that has feelings. And those feelings are to be felt and expressed and embodied, not to be sort of fuel for an attack or fuel for some sort of wild, stupid decision or some kind of punitive action or some kind of demand that you want to make. There to be, whew, wow, I feel pissed right now. Like, oh man, I'm really wanting more consideration and respect. Like you get to have those feelings, feel them, embody them, express them. Um, and that's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for a lot of us, um, especially men who have no emotions and no needs. For someone who finds them, someone who's conscious enough to find that they're in a victim state, how do you recommend they get out of that state without turning to blame and shame and guilt? Because those things are so common for us to put on ourselves. Yeah. Well, you know, as a practitioner of nonviolence, which is a, a sort of a, a principle of organicity, it's a Tai Chi, right? I don't resist victimhood. Uh, if, you're, if you find yourself really, really in a state where you're, you are um, feeling victimized by someone, then take that, take that feeling that you have, you know, like likely as your head's tilted a little forward, your shoulders are down, your heart's kind of collapsed, and just squeeze it a little tighter. Make it conscious. Make your state of like contraction conscious and go into like the sorriest ass victim story that you can come up with. Like, oh, go all the way into that feeling and express it in the privacy of your own home or in the presence of somebody who can hold space for you and bear witness for you as you do it, right? Don't resist that experience or contraction, but go with it in the Aikido way. Go with it and contract into it. Feel it get all the way down into the crunchy guts of that of that feeling of victimhood and then start to breathe some space into it and open it up somatically physically start to connect with your gratitude start to connect with what is true for you now right start to connect with your sovereignty and start to take responsibility for the places that you empower that person to do that thing to you because in 99.999% of the cases where we feel like a victim, we, somebody is just using the power that we gave them, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so you have, to, you have to be honest with yourself. Like, what were you trading? What was the trade? You compromised your power to get something. You, you put yourself in that position as a barter for something. What were you trying to get? And, and, and like, own that. Wow, like, I have a habit of, of like, not speaking my truth in order to get love or acceptance or or some sense of belonging right like if that's the case for you own it and start to watch it happen and i find that is so powerful with our closest relationships intimate or with our, our parents or our children and it just it reframes the whole situation and i find it is so much easier than to to look at what I can learn from that situation rather than stew in that victimness where I'm blaming others reflect back and, and take it as a lesson, which is really hard to do. Yeah. It's so valuable. Well, oof, man, this gets us into some like, like subtle territory and I'll just, I'll just mark this for a deeper conversation at some point maybe, but it's been very, it's become very clear to me that, Victimhood is a way of using our power. That a victim says, B 
because I've, I'm a victim, I'm entitled to X, Y, and Z. And so we only think that we get X, Y, and Z. We have a pattern of thinking in order to get X, Y, and Z that I need, I have to become a victim in order to be worthy of it. I have to be the victim of you harming me. I'm not already worthy of having X, Y, and Z and the rest of the alphabet already in, in my joyous, happy state. I have to enter into a pattern of victimhood and, vic and victimization in order to be entitled to get that from you and or from my community. Right. And so in really watching and tracking the ways that as a culture, we've become more sensitive. Right. We want to be more a more sensitive culture. Um, and, you know, there are massive abuses in the shadow of the perpetrator in a completely insensitive culture that we've emerged out of. But as we become more sensitive and now that we've checked to some extent the power of the perpetrator, now we also have to recognize the abuses of power of the victim. Yeah. start to check victim power in our sensitive culture and do it in a way that is not re-traumatizing, that's not dismissive of what happened, that's not in any way blaming the victim, but that's also not um, letting people use victim power to get needs met, that ultimately they can get met in a much more elegant and much more collaborative way. Yeah, and it's so important, I find, too, that we recognize that the energy of the perpetrator is projecting out as negative and if we respond with victimhood we become a perpetrator in a sense because we're perpetuating the negative energy we're just adding negative to negative and no positive is going to come out of that situation yeah and 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 the thing is you know we can't ever take a moment of our lives back sorry never take it back you never get that do-over in in real time what you can do is start right here, setting boundaries that are appropriate and honoring of yourself. What you can do is start right here, tending to yourself and your precious needs, asking for things that, that will help your needs get met. But truly, I want anybody who is, is feeling entitled to something because somebody did something to them, to ask yourself, what if I'm not entitled to anything? What if I'm not entitled to anything? What if nobody owes me anything? for anything that's happened up, into, up through my life until now, what would I do then? Who would I be if nobody owed me a goddamn thing? And how would I live my life? And the same goes in the opposite direction. I don't owe anybody anybody, anything, right? And we, we live in this commerce of obligation that's so disruptive to our, our authentic freedom and our, our joy and our, our true intimacy. So how do, we, how do we get out of there? We do radical thought experiments, like what if nobody owes me anything? And the fact is, you know, we've got a few friends who owe me a few bucks, right? We've got some agreements in place. There are, there are some legitimate agreements that I have with people, but most of what people think they're owed or owe are based on, on invisible um, agreements, silent agreements that we never really made, but we keep up somehow. Mm. Joshua, I love this conversation, and I really would like to do a, a deeper exploration of this in another other session you you work with men frequently and you lead some, some retreats can you tell us a bit about the work that you do yeah well my work in the brotherhood community is just such an honor and a pleasure i've had the um the grace of being involved in men's work since i was 24 years old my dad sent me to an mkp retreat as i was getting ready to have a a, a son born into the world He's like, get your shit together and go do this thing. And, and it was a massive gift. Um, and today, 
um, almost 20 years later, I'm, uh, I'm running several retreats a year with my business partners, uh, Robert Schwenkler, Shuja the Peace, Peter Rubin, and we bring men together to do the work of really kind of uh, just peeling off the armor, getting, getting out of this like brittle armor that men have been trained to wear that, that keeps us disconnected from each other and our own, our own core, right? And diving down into the, some of the deeper, darker um, shadows of our rage and our fear and our shame and really fully expressing that in a space that has room for all of it and learning to let our men hold us in those states, learning to lean into our brothers um, in, our, in our vulnerability, learning to trust other men. And when that happens, it just unlocks so much new energy and resource in our nervous systems. Um, we start to really look at how we're using our power in the world. What is power and how do we use it? We start to really open our sense of possibility to what is the most incredible dream I can dream this lifetime and what's it going to take for me to start walking that path, right? And bringing all these new resources and a band of brothers who, who have been through something so powerful together to support me and be supported by me, to hold me accountable and hold me to my highest. So um, it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful experience. We run a, a four-day retreat called the Men's Leadership Intensive, and it includes a month-long integration, uh, virtual integration phase, where we have a bunch of phone calls and assignments and ways to get your feet back on the ground, doing the things that are going to make your life reflect the new you. And um, I just feel so honored to do this work, brother. I, I've just witnessed so many men in such rare states of utter vulnerability and raw power. Because the same place where you go down and find where your shame lives, that's also where your fucking killer animal lives and where that part of you that is built to thrive and, and, and just take life and grasp it in your claws lives as well, right? And we get so, uh, we get so domesticated um, by our, our culture and conditioning. And uh, it's a real opportunity to just carve, carve through all of that. It's incredible work that you're doing. It's really needed and so valuable. Yeah, thanks. Thank you, thank you, brother. And, and, you know, we all need it. And we're all in this big collective conversation about masculinity and femininity and how we can end the war between men and women, essentially, between the masculine and feminine. There's been so, so much misunderstanding and victimhood. The shadows of these, the, of these aspects of all of us, of each of us, have been in play for a really long time. And we've got an incredible opportunity in our time to, to um, start pioneering some new models for radical, authentic, loving, polarized, rich, juicy relationships. And I think that's going to be part of the backbone of a, of a, a whole new way of, of living together. I'm so excited for your event here, April 4th and 5th. And before we wrap up here, I just want uh, to give you the opportunity to let the listeners know where they can learn more about you and your work. Yeah, thank you. Um, and I do want to say as much as I like hearing my own voice that two days of me talking would just be like death, a slow, quiet death for all of us. So um, it's not going to be talking. There's going to be plenty of that. And we're going to be breaking things down and asking questions, but there's going to be so much dyad work. It's going to be an opportunity to connect with the people who show up at that workshop in a way that you've never connected with them. There's going to be opportunities for vulnerability, honesty, connection, practicing, doing things badly, asking for things, um, and supporting each other as a community. It's, it's more than just information, right? It's a whole experience of what it's like to be in a community of transparency. 
and, a, and, and feel connected to the mycelium of your community at a level that is unhidden in all the ways that we tend to hide without even knowing, right? And so thank you for that. Um, awesome. People can go to masteryourbullshit.com. Um, hopefully by the time this airs, I'm going to have a beautiful new website with some new branding and some great photos and some fun things going on on the site. You can, um, you can sign up for that and get a series of free videos that'll introduce you in bite-sized chunks to the, the, the basics of no bullshit communication. Check out my coaching, my one-on-one -on -one work and the work I do with couples. I love going into organizations and helping teams to sort of ferret out the bullshit. I'm kind of a, bull, uh, a bullshit bloodhound. I can get a lot of information from a very little packet of, of sort of scent around what's really corrupting teamwork and collaboration in an organization and help people to have the hard conversations and start doing that more often and well. Um, and then, uh, of course, the, the, the brotherhood work, the brotherhood community work that I'm doing and some of the co-ed intimacy workshops that I run. You can find all that information on my website. And we've actually got a virtual, for those of you who aren't around California where I do most of my work, or Victoria in April where I'm going to be coming out to, um, to run some, some uh, workshopping, um, we have a virtual offering through the brotherhood community called Connect. If you go to brotherhoodcommunity.com slash connect, it's a great um, sort of uh, set of two hour long virtual containers where we bring men and women together to have some of the difficult conversations. We create a lot of um, presence and space within the container and then we put people in dyads with a structure to talk about on one call to talk about healing and reconciliation. Where do you carry rage and resentment toward the other sex? Where do you carry shame and grief around the other sex? And in the second call we we um, uh, explore and, and talk about our desires and our sexuality and our turn on and just un sort of shaming ourselves from having this experience of aliveness in our bodies, how to express our desire without demanding anything or obligating anyone to anything or feeling obligated when you hear someone's desires. And it's a really powerful practice. You'll probably never see any of those people again, um, but um, some exquisitely healing things happen in those containers. So feel free to check it out. and. Uh, I'll look forward to hopefully seeing some of your faces in April at the, uh, at the workshop, the marriage of power and compassion. That is great. And I can't, I can't overstate how much I appreciate you and the work that you're doing. It is so valuable and I'm honored to be able to bring this to some people who haven't, haven't heard of you and your work. So thank you for, for agreeing to do this today. It's been a, a pleasure. Man. Todd, thank you. Thank you for the stand you are for men for holistic medicine, for the community, for this knowledge getting out into the world and rippling out and healing relationships and, and hearts and lives everywhere. I just, I have so much admiration for you and what you've accomplished and your commitment to, to really um, creating a space for so many people to learn and grow and heal. So thanks so much for, for having me on and looking forward to more connection. I hope you listened intently to this episode of Pacific Rim College Radio with Joshua Hathaway. Don't forget to check out Joshua's upcoming Pacific Rim College communication workshop called The Marriage of Compassion and Power on April 4th and 5th. This workshop will be powerful for all healthcare practitioners looking to enhance their clinical practice and for anyone who wants to deepen interpersonal connections. Go to pacificrimcollege.com to learn more. If you enjoyed this podcast, share it with your friends and family and give it a five-star rating on whatever podcast app you are using. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, mindfully listen to someone you care about 
and see how this simple yet challenging act bridges your relationship in entirely new ways.